0: The definition of the college experience seems to be a pretty subjective one. It really depends on what a person's intention is on getting to college, or more broadly, higher education. What do they want to get out of it? There's traditional students right out of high school. There's adult learners. We can look at higher education into two parts. There's the journey to get there, and then there's the experience once I'm already there not everyone's journey to get there is so smooth some are fortunate that it is and actually that journey starts towards the beginning of high school even planning and preparing and some people from different socioeconomic statuses and backgrounds maybe have certain resources that others don't some are more focused on the social experience some on the academic experience we all come at it from a different perspective no matter what it's a journey and sometimes a stressful one. So join me, Shmuel Fischler, and my co-host, which you'll find out who it is in a moment, to talk about just that, the journey to get there, which can be challenging, can be confusing, can be overwhelming, and then how do we manage once we get there and how we can be best prepared to make that a successful and positive experience. Thank you for joining us. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to talk to interesting people about interesting topics all through the lens of mental health. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting us. My name is Shmuel Fischler, and hopefully some of you are familiar with me already. I am a clinical social worker. I run a specialized psychotherapy practice just a bit north of Baltimore called CBT Baltimore. And as you heard in the introduction, today's topic is everything related to higher education with a little bit of a focus specifically on the path to get there but also the experience while someone is engaged in higher education. I think there's something very relatable. Millions and millions of people go through this process and this experience all the time. Some people have maybe more positive experiences. Some people have less positive. And being that I am not the expert in this, I was able to connect to someone who is So I'm going to allow our co-host for today introduce
1: himself, Ed, if you would please let everyone know who you are. Sure. Thanks so much for the invitation. I'm Ed Cabellan. I am currently the Vice President of Enrollment Management at Curry College in Massachusetts. I've worked in higher education for the past 23 years, primarily in administration I've also taught at the undergraduate level, as well as the graduate level. So I've had experiences both in and out of the classroom, but my day job for the most part has been in administration, primarily on the student uh, services area and enrollment uh, management area. I earned my bachelor's degree in communication from uh, Stonehill College in Massachusetts, my master's degree in educational leadership from Central Connecticut State University, and my doctorate in, in education from uh, Johnson at Wales University in Providence, Rhode Island, and my dissertation was on the historical use of technology in, in student affairs primarily over a 10-year period between 2005 and 15. that looked at the impact of technology during that period on both the student experience, in particular looking at the lens of social media, and have had a lot of great experiences working with students throughout the 20-plus years professionally. I've had opportunities to publish, as well as to speak and consult, and so certainly, 2020 has created disruption where disruption was already taking place, and I think the pandemic certainly has accelerated that for many industries. And notwithstanding higher education, really happy to be with you today to have a conversation about higher ed, mental health, and what it's like to go through the admission process, as well as what it's like to be at an institution of higher learning today.
0: Awesome. That's great. And I hope to pull everything I can out of your experience. The students, hopefully we'll get into that crossover of social media and students. And so I'm grateful that you're here and I'm sure everyone listening is as well. And for all you listening, I'm sure you've noticed that still somehow Ed does not have a accent from the area.
1: No Boston accent from for me. Sure.
0: No. <laughs> so. Right. So very glad to jump into this. And and part of the the motivation, I'll be transparent here, part of the motivation, which how this topic got in my mind is that some of the people that I'm working with have struggled with this along different parts of this process. Let's start with just laying the groundwork a little bit of some of the universal steps. And I know it's, it's different for different colleges, but someone who is getting into that part of their life, whether they're an adolescent or whether they're an adult learner. What are some of the steps they have to take to get into college or university?
1: Sure. Great question. So I think if you're the parent of an adolescent who many of my colleagues would describe as traditional age students, even though we know from the data that traditional age students are now older in late twenties, early thirties, but We'll stick with what's, what most folks I think uh, would classify as tr- a traditional age student, which is that 17, 18-year-old senior and even earlier juniors who, when you start taking standardized tests, you start getting into what's called the admissions funnel in many ways where your information, your test scores, and what you indicate with that, throughout that process is interests or possible majors or locations that you might want to go to school starts getting fed into a supercomputer <laughs> where colleges and universities can pull that information from the college board specifically to look at from this high school private public charter whatever are looking to recruit looking to pull those students to their institutions so i think what most folks need to know is that college right now is a competitive process not necessarily for those applying but for the colleges themselves looking for students so if you're a student who is a prospective student who's looking to go to college and it's, and it's not what I would call, classify as, as an elite school. So, the, so elite schools are Ivy institutions, Division I public and private institutions with a sports program associated with it that you, you could, you'd see on Saturday afternoons. And, and even some of the more regional select, selective schools that may not be Ivy or may not be a Division I sports heavy school, but are, are pretty selective. An example might be a Williams as an example, or a Bates College, you know, or a Tufts University here in, the, in, in this area. If you're applying to any other type of school other than that, colleges and universities are really spending a lot of time and effort in recruiting you. Because of shifting demographics, particularly in the Northeast and the West Coast, there are less families with high school graduates because of birth rates over the last 20 years. So their families are smaller than they were 20, 30, 40 years ago. I came from a family of three. Now my family's, I have two kids, and we see more and more families with one or two kids. That just means less graduates to choose from. So I think the, the first thing I would tell folks applying to school is it's competitive for the colleges, not necessarily for them. They have—they will have options in the process. And so certainly Applying to take the standardized test is important, although you'll see more and more schools aren't requiring them. They're only required at the higher level now. So when you see schools that say test optional, it means that you don't need to submit a standardized test as part of your application. And colleges are becoming really, I think, smart about that because standardized tests may not be the best indicator of student success in college, where their high school GPA is going to be a much better one. So we look at high school GPA weighted or not weighted against the curriculum of that specific high school. And so that's the most important thing on top of making sure that a student is well-rounded, involved, and is able to. One of the things we've noticed over the last probably five or 10 years is that quality of writing from students has gone down. It's not as good as it used to be. So if you can write well, if you can speak well, if you're not afraid to have an interview and talk to an admissions counselor, um, you'll be in a better position than other students who may still have that fear or may not have not had that opportunity. Additionally, I would say for traditionally students is to file a FAFSA, and the FAFSA is the, is the free application for federal student aid. It is, the, it is a really long and arduous process, unfortunately. The, the government does not make it easy for you to apply for federal aid, but certainly there's guidance counselors at the high schools, and there's certainly people at every college who are willing to help walk folks through that form. The earlier you file that form, the more likely you are to get the most aid that you can possibly get. So when you see the FAFSA open for the next academic year, file early. It's the best advice I can tell you. If you are looking, if you're an adult looking to go back to school, I would just say federal aid is, is available to you too. And so it's not just for high school seniors who are looking to go to college, but anyone can apply for aid depending on their situation. And so what I think most people don't realize is that they want to get a master's degree. So let's say they have a bachelor's degree. They want to go back for an advanced degree, a master's degree, a second bachelor's. They want to switch careers, especially now with the pandemic, people losing jobs. They have to switch careers. Financial aid is available for them as well, especially if they're getting an advanced degree. And so I would highly encourage folks to do that and to talk with their local admissions area, the colleges that they're interested in applying with, either in, continuing, in their continuing education area or at the you know traditional area to figure out how best to apply for both process for the programs you're looking to get into and the aid that's available to them.
0: Oh, okay, that's a lot of good information. And whoever's listening, if you need to rewind that and listen to that again, because there's a lot of good stuff in there, that's an interesting point about the, the pool that's dwindling of students, so it's more competitive for schools. So it's interesting because on one hand, schools want to recruit harder and, and get students from this pool that's getting a little bit smaller and a little bit smaller. On the other hand, for some families, for some students, it's not entirely clear, maybe they're just not understanding, but it's not entirely clear to them what the school actually wants. What exactly are they looking for? So are they looking just at the hard data? Are they looking way beyond the data? They Mm -hmm. all have mission statements and mantras and slogans and all that good stuff. And so what actually they're looking for, and even within the directives in, let's say, the essays or the profiles that they're asking for and have different prompts, sometimes it can be confusing to them as far as, well, okay, what, what does the school want? Be, be straight with me, what do you want?
1: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. I, I would say that what we want to see, number one is, a well-written essay, and if they need to, if they need help with that, they should get the help they need to write that. Oftentimes, I think a lot of students stress out about writing it perfectly, and I think there's some element of grace in in the imperfection of some of a, of a high school senior's essay, where it shouldn't be so perfect. When I read it, and I'm like, or my staff reads it, and they're like, "This is really good, like almost too good," and so I think. Folks should allow their students, so the parents or the guardians of students who are applying to college should be allowed to have that essay be authentic to their voice. And I think a strategy I would recommend for seniors or juniors applying to college, I would say to tell the story. Whatever the question is, I would tell a story. And I would tell a story, you know, if I were to break it up into three parts, I would say, think about the situation that you're describing. One question might be, Talk about a difficult time in your life and how you overcame it. One of the basic questions, tell a story, tell the situation, what was happening. And then really the ones I've seen best are, are when they talk about what their role in the story was. What did I do in the story that either helped me overcome it? Or did I get help from someone and I got the help and used the help? Did I fail? And what did that failure teach me? So, the story along with the role of that student in the story towards the outcome, right? So SRO, we want to use an acronym, right? Situation of the story, the role you played in the outcome. And if you can say that within 500 to 750 words, which is about two to three pages, double-spaced, give or take, if you're using a font like Times Roman um, or Arial, I think. Uh, y- you can, that gets people's attention because, again, when you think of the, the volume that admission counselors and folks read, you really want to tell a story so that they they are engaged. It's It shouldn't be boilerplate where it's, it sounds almost robotic when you're answering. Telling stories are an important piece of that. So that's one piece of advice I would give in terms of what, are we, what do we want.
0: Can I jump in for a second? Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. That's really helpful to give that guidance. You're preaching to the choir when you talk to me about imperfection because working a lot with anxiety and obsessive compulsive disorder, where you're trying to attain this level of perfection that's just impossible. It's just really impossible. So I am the biggest fan of intentionally being imperfect. And if I'm understanding correctly, it's really more about I want to see how the student writes than necessarily answering the question exactly. Because some of these questions are like ambiguous in nature. Students, and maybe sometimes parents, they heap this whole ton of pressure of, I need to get this answer right. There's so much riding on this one essay. Am I getting exactly what they had in mind? Am I not? What are they going to think? If I share something that I screwed up on, How's it gonna be taken? Am I gonna be judged? Should I do that on purpose? Am I gonna sound too perfect if I say how awesome I am? And so there's all this like swirling through their head. They're so focused on the question rather than the quality of writing. Mm -hmm. And a common comment that I've gotten is, I'm not that special. I'm just a kid who wants to go to college. And they're asking this question like, what makes me unique and what's so special? What if I'm just a regular kid who wants to go to school? Am I supposed to make up something that's so special and unique about me? What would you tell a student that asks that? Which I'm sure you've gotten.
1: Yeah, we get that all the time. And that, that whole what makes me special question is more of a sign of that need to be perfect than less about getting meaning to answer in that way. I, I don't think I've ever... S- There may have been other colleges who have asked, what makes you special? I I can't say I've never seen that before. I actually haven't ever seen it, but it doesn't mean it hasn't happened, if that makes sense. So my my advice would be just to be honest about what the question's asking you. And really, the critical thinking part of that question is important, right? So if they have to critically think about what is it about me that is a good fit for that college, then I would just think about the, I would ask that student to go, you're applying to that school for this program or because you visited or you saw something on the website. Talk about that. Talk about how you saw the, the photos or the social media feeds of this place or the professors. I saw a YouTube video that they were talking and I really connected with that professor. I think I could really, like, that's where I would go. I would, if I didn't have, if, I didn't think I was quote-unquote special <laughs> or brought anything special to the table because I'm just like any other kid. I, I would just then take a different approach and say, all, all right, I, I, think I'm a good, I think I'm a pretty good student. I think I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. And this is what I connected to because people at the admin, on the admission level appreciate the fact when people bring up things that they work really hard on to create and put out there for them to consume and then, they, and then someone cites it. Love that video on this or love that story you put on instagram regarding that and that speaks to my family that speaks to my involvement at my church or my volunteer work with this and again i think we we want to we want to know if that student would be through their storytelling through their writing if they could actually fit at the institution because some stories you see you're like i don't know if they'd fit here let's interview them and get to know them a little bit more and it is just as much of a chance for us to get to know the student As it is for the student to get to know us when we follow up with an interview and say, we read your essay, tell us more. It's just jumping off point. It's not a final ending. This is it. I'm going to send it in. And what I think people try to do, which I would recommend not doing, is using the same stories or the same information for multiple uh, applications. And that does take more work because each application is going to be different. If you use the Common App, then you can certainly get away with some of, the, of using some of the same things because uh, it's a general application. But if you're going to be writing and being asked to write multiple essays for multiple applications, then I would take the time to spend on each one, give it the same amount of respect and time that you're giving the other one, and really do your research, do your homework. Really ask yourself, do I, am I applying to this school because I want to do it or because my parents are asking me to do it? You really need to think about that. Because it does come up, it will come up in an interview eventually, so you should have that queued up anyway. Read
0: what you write and be able to <laughs> back that up. In a way, it reminds me of cover letters for job applications. Very if much you so. use the same cover letter for multiple applications. You want to think about what job am I applying for? Why mm-hmm. do I want to work there? What is unique about this uh, employer? And let me tailor my cover letter to to fit that. Another... I think aspect, which maybe adds pressure, which is sort of dovetails of what you were just saying before, of the pressure that they add to themselves, is needing to know like their future. So on one hand, developmentally, 17, 18-year-olds, they're far from finished developing. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Neurologically, they still got a a ways to go until they're fully developed. And then on the other hand, they at least perceive sometimes that they're being asked what's your identity or where do you see yourself and where do you want to be? And internally they're interpreting that. How am I supposed to know? I'm supposed to know exactly where I'm supposed to be and where my life is going to lead me and what's my identity. Guess what? I'm trying to figure that out. So that's like another like element of them taking a question and then perhaps twisting it, which then becomes way more pressured.
1: That's right. For me, I would say that the answers to the question of what I want to be when I grow up, if you know that clear as day, I'm going to have more questions for you because I want to know how you got there. And some people do. Some people are like, I knew I wanted to be a, a firefighter because my dad was one. I saw him saving lives and I want to go into fire technician training at the community. There are things that you hear from people, and like, okay, but if I want to be a communication major, business major, psychology, sociology, those are oftentimes Interest majors that get developed within the first two years of someone's college experience because they're just figuring they hear the words and they think that's what they want to do until they actually get into it. Someone wants to be a nurse until they have to take chemistry, uh, until they have to take biology, until they have to take all these things like, oh, I got to take all this to be a nurse? Oh, okay. Maybe not. And we see a lot more undecided students coming to the institution. And what we do for them is we have them pick interests. We you know we do these things at orientation where we give them interest surveys where it allows them to explore career paths that they might be interested in. And then we back them into a major as undecided or a school of business that's undecided. So they can, they can just take part in all sorts of classes and figure out, Oh, I like the math part of this. Maybe I do want to do accounting or I like the public relations side of this and do social media professionally. Huh? All right. I'll do com or a, biz, a double major in common business. And so we give them that chance to explore, but you're right at 17, 18, they really don't know. They think they know. And it's only through the college experience is that gives them the opportunity to explore and discover other interests they may not have realized they had. And so I would be less focused on picking the major. If you know something you're interested in, great, but it's not going to be a make or break. I think it's finding the right institution for you and your family. What you can afford, uh, I think, is an important piece as well. There's a lot of opportunities at the publics and at the privates for folks and depending on what you're willing to pay. And that's the bigger sort of national conversation about American higher education right now is the value because of how expensive it's become. And the idea of taking out loans and having student loan debt adds a lot of stress to that already stressful situation. So certainly we can talk about other strategies to make college more affordable, but I would say that's something you're going to have to wrestle with your family. Because you can get a degree from one state university that's going to cost you double or triple at a private school. But the difference is that you have access to various alumni from the private schools that might get you a better internship or job that leads you to a better job right off the jump. So there's access pieces that you must consider when you pick between a private versus public. That's part of the reason why it's more expensive, but not the entirety of it.
0: You started to answer a question, and this could be a whole episode in and of itself, about the question of the value of higher education. You know, it's a debate all over the place of, in general, is what's the value right now in the United States of higher education? Either an associate's, a bachelor's, a master's, and so on. Where do you, What are your thoughts on that? So you alluded to part of the answer of the connection and the network that it brings you. But what, in general, how would you, what was your thoughts on, on the matter?
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I have lots. I guess I would start by saying it depends on what you wanna do. So if you definitely know, if, if you are clear as day your career path, then there are arguments to be made for attending certain types of colleges in your neck of the woods. So the, the Northeast, this is where I live and this is where I can speak to most, most definitely. If you're gonna be a teacher, Let's just say that. I find it very difficult for someone to pay for a private school education to be a teacher. There's not really an economical value prop for me that says, yeah, I I should pay the money I should to go to my alma mater, Stonehill College, as an example, right? My, My wife got an education degree from Stonehill College because she was in Maine and she wanted to come to Stonehill and she left Maine and came to Massachusetts. But if I'm a local kid in Massachusetts in Boston, and I want to be a teacher, there are plenty of much cheaper alternatives at the community college and at the state university and state college level. That's a third of the price. That will not sally you with debt in a career, frankly, that doesn't pay a lot when you first get into it. And so, that's an example I would say of it. Just if you don't know what you want to be when you grow up, it becomes more of a you're rolling the dice. And if you are currently in a private school setting, let's say you have the opportunity to go to private school because your family has the means to do chances are you're probably gonna go to a private college because that's the world you're in. If you are at a public high school or, or even in some cases a private parochial school, it all depends on your on what lane your parents are in where, and where they may have gone to school. You often follow that sort of that trajectory and so, even though my wife and I are private school educated, my kids are public school educated and they would have access. I think they would make a choice to go to a public school, frankly. I don't think they'd go to a private school. It's a lot more money for me, but whatever. It is what it is. <laughs> and I think financial aid makes it affordable where you can, in the first year anyway, afford pay the same amount you paid at the public school that you would as a private school in that first year. It's the second, third, and fourth years, they don't tell you about that. You got to figure out how to finance. So they get you in and hopefully they, they wow you to the point where you want to stay and you figure out the second, third and fourth year. But I would say that the access issue for education is a real thing for many students. I guess the third example I would say for students who are trying to pick the value proposition is if you're in a public high school setting now and you can take what's called dual enrollment classes at your local community college that are offered to students beginning their junior year. You can amass a ton of credits before you even graduate high school and enter college as a sophomore or even a junior, depending on how hard you hustle in your last two years of high school. I've seen students be able to graduate from high school and then the week later earn their associates because they've already earned that many credits. So they start whatever college they're going to as a transfer junior and only pay for two years of school. That's if you're going to game the system, there are ways to game the system. It again, all depends on what major you choose. It's not, you're not going to be able to do that with every major, but depending on what you want to do, if you have an idea, you might be able to figure other options out for, for right. you. and your family.
0: There are strategies out there. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious because you did your thesis on this and I want to touch on social media. How do you think on both ends? So on the student end and then on the school end, how do you think social media has impacted how students communicate, make certain decisions and expose themselves and articulate themselves? And then how does it impact the school? Because now the school all of a sudden has this major access to be able to learn about a prospective student. There's no filter, like it's all out there. And so how does it, how does that influence how a school then researches or learns about the student,
1: yeah, so I'll start on the student' side. I would say to students listening or to parents with students who are listening who are going to apply to college, I would say the first thing I would do is make sure that your social media feeds are anonymous and not uh, something that has your actual name to it. A lot of students I know, high school students, don't use their real name or use their real name like a pseudonym, like their first name, middle name, or something else like that because the challenge with social media in high school now is that, and this was in my, when I look at my research five years ago now, it really shows that developmentally uh, an adolescent is just not ready to, to deal with the psychosocial impact of use of social media in the way that it's been used and how it's evolved since its inception. So, Twitter was oh seven, oh eight; Facebook was like oh four, oh five. So. How people use social media has evolved over these past 13 to 15-ish years. And there's enough research out there that talks about the detriments of adolescent social media use and the the connections to anxiety and stress because of this need to be perfect and to be on all the time. So on that note alone, my teenager doesn't have social of her friend group, she's the only one who's a freshman in high school, doesn't have TikTok, doesn't have Instagram, doesn't have anything. And I, and I know that it's going to help her with her development more than giving into the need to not to have FOMO or to miss out on, on, on something. So the benefit though, so the other side of that coin is if a student can learn how to really manage their online identity and their online presence, they can manipulate the system if they use their real name. And they create these outstanding social accounts on Instagram and YouTube and whatever to show them what they're capable of doing and how they add to the, how they contribute to society, how they contribute to their friend group, how they contribute to their church, how they contribute, how are they contributing, not taking, but contributing. And by junior year in high school, that's when I would say my daughter will most likely have a social account or some, and that's what we're going to focus on less about being social and more about what are we putting out there that someone who's going to be looking at you at a college search through Google, because that's what they'll use, will find. And if you Google me, you can see all the stuff that's been associated with me throughout my professional career. And I've told that story to my, my kids because I want them to understand that nothing you put out there digitally is written in pencil. It's written in ink. And so you, you have to understand that's the mindset you go into when you post something. That That's the, the payment. It's Nothing's, it's not, it's free, but it's not free because you're the product when, in, in this case. You're the one giving out your information.
0: At the same time, we're asking an adolescent whose frontal lobe is not fully developed to make wise decisions. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Correct. And it's just, it's maddening because it just, it's accelerating something that doesn't need to be accelerated for what, at what cost and what price on the development of that teen as they get into their young adult age. I would say from the college side, we look at social media more as an addendum than the actual application, right? We're not look we're not using social to like maybe in employment when you're in a job search, people do it this way. But for certainly at the admissions level, if they engage with us online through social media, we may not even not know who that person is because they're anonymous. They might message us on. Instagram or on TikTok and say something, but we don't know if that's a student or a prospective student or not unless they identify themselves. So our focus on the college side is to create content and create a lane for people to come into when they need help and information. We use social to give information, to start conversations, and to ask how we can be helpful in real time. So the expectation from a college side is that we got to be able to respond to students and families quick quickly because that's what they want. They want that quick answer. As opposed to sending an email and knowing that they may not hear from us for a day or two. Social media from, co- from a college perspective has become more sophisticated, it's become more targeted, and it's given us opportunities to have open conversations with the community in ways that wasn't available before because we had the one-to-one form of communication, a one-to-many depending on how you blasted out information. Social is a many-to-many communication format which you know, it's probably the biggest improvement or change to communication since the printing press when you really think of the totality of how the internet and social media has created this communication medium. From the student side, I would say think about what you're posting and make sure that if you're gonna use your real name, that you're using it to show what you're interested in, what you're capable, what you're curating and contributing. And from the college side, when you're consuming that information as a student or a parent, understand that's the best form of that's the best way to get quick answers and start conversations in a way that's different than sending an email or a text message that may have some chat bot associated with it or or whatever.
0: And I imagine like the school can't, and they don't, like you said, put all their eggs in the basket of relying on social media, because like you said, if I'm savvy, I can manipulate. I mean, someone can even, someone out there maybe even has a business of that they're gonna curate your social media junior and senior year yep. so that we're gonna make you look really good and they're gonna see that and you're gonna be, be the model student, the model citizen, and obviously the schools have to take that all with a grain of salt and not rely on it.
1: They do, yeah, for sure.
0: Similar question for different parts of a student support system. So parents and college advisors. And we all know that some are, I don't know what the word is. Some are more supportive than others. (laughs) How have you seen, so you're after the fact, but how have you seen how the role of parents can really help the student thrive through the process and how to the opposite, to the detrimental side and the same thing for, college counselors, because I've heard some many very beautiful success stories. And then I've heard plenty of stories where it was just a really challenging experience within both of those roles. Yes,
1: yeah, so I would say that if a parent or guardian has gone to college, it makes it a lot easier for that student, because they're talking from a place of experience. And the detriment of that experience might come into play with the helicopter nature of some of parents who want to do the work for them, as opposed to letting them go through the process, making mistakes, failing, and learning from that failure. So I think there's value add to parents who have gone to college because it's not a foreign concept, if you will, of the application process. Where it can be really challenging is if you're, the, if you're a first generation student. In other words, that your parents or guardians didn't go to college or didn't go to college in the U.S. Because again, the U.S. higher education system is different than some of the other world, some of the other countries out there that have their higher education system set up. So I'm a first generation product. My parents were immigrants from the Philippines who came here in the 70s, looking to make a better life for them and their family. And so when I was applying to college, it was hard because I had to lean on my guidance counselor at the time because my parents had no idea. Listen to your counselor, listen to your advisors. And I think to your point, they're guidance counselors who do an outstanding job of helping a student navigate the process of application, balancing which ones to really apply to, getting their wish list down, and then narrowing it down because it's expensive with every fee that you have to pay to formally apply to a college. What I would say is if a student can find that advisor who can help them, and not do it for them, but really help them figure out what they're wanting to do, it's, that's really what you should be looking for. Having an advisor help you narrow down your interests your um, schools in a way that's not just it's based on this test that you took or this personality inventory or whatever that these are the colleges you should go to it's okay that's a starting point it's not the end point it's taking that next step and they, those who are excellent at their jobs what i, what I would consider those guys that constantly go above and beyond what's expected those students definitely benefit because it's not just the boilerplate these are the things you should do
0: I imagine that it's a trap that one can easily fall in as a college counselor. And I, I you know with all due respect to all college counselors out there, I've never been in the position. I don't know what it's like when you have so much volume in such a short period of time and you're expected to help. There, there's a window and then they all need help. And a lot of them don't know exactly what they want. It could be easy to fall into getting into that boilerplate and And students don't necessarily have a choice of selection of what advisor I'm going to get. This is just the advisor that I'm given, and I have to live with this. And if they're unfortunately stuck with one that is maybe overwhelmed or is, I don't know, is maybe burnt out of the volume of what they have to do, that could be a real big challenge for them.
1: It can be. And I think... From the student perspective, I would take, I would be on the offensive. I would be aggressive to make sure that those appointments with those advisors are made early, made often, because often with a caseload at the high school level, you'll get a blast email from a counselor to other people to schedule appointments. Those who do it right away are going to be in a better position than those who wait or those who wait to get asked again. And so parents and students should be taking advantage even before that initial blast email goes out to say, I I want to talk to you. Second semester, junior year. Start that conversation then to talk about what colleges and universities might be interested in attending and the process and listing out here are the things you should do. Here are the milestones you need to meet and here's why. Because otherwise, you're going to get lost in the volume. You could get lost in that volume because of that counselor's workload. The other side, too, is... It, if there's a school you really want to go to and your guidance counselor isn't available, you can certainly talk to an admissions counselor. They're, they are also in a position to help you navigate the process and help you figure out, is this really the place I should be? Sometimes, because of volume, it might make sense to do, it's not, it shouldn't be an either or, it could be a both and, where you're talking to your guidance counselor, but you're also talking to an admissions counselor about the process. And in particular, the financial aid stuff because i think where some guidance counselors are not as strong is understanding financial aid they understand the admissions process but they may not get the subtleties of financial aid and the amount of content you need to pull together in order to have a fafsa completely filled out and what scholarships and grants and other things that you and your family might be eligible for that that person May, that guidance counselor may not know because the, the the guidance and the rules change, you know, every few years. Things change in the process. And if you're not a professional financial aid person, you're not necessarily caught up with some of the things that's changed since the former administration and now a new administration coming in. So it's just, those are the, the, some of the subtleties I would call out.
0: That's helpful. That's helpful. You've been around higher education a long time. Are there certain, you know, characteristics or certain when you're looking at a student that after being around for, for this many years, that there's a handful of predictors or a recipe, so to speak, that this student you know is going to thrive in college. What are some of the ingredients?
1: Yeah, I think the first thing is GPA. So if their GPA is at a 3.0 or above, depending on the type of school they attend, they're in a better position to succeed that first semester, that first year, because that GPA tells us a lot about their academic preparedness. Under three, we just know they're going to need more academic support, and that's something we provide, but we know that's going to be, a, that might be a stumbling block, and we have to be prepared to support that student if they choose to attend our institution. The second predictor or characteristic, I would say, is someone who's involved. We, do, we just don't want a student as a student, we want to know what else have they contributed to their high school as part of their experience. Sports, clubs, organizations, volunteering in their community, church. Again, the students we've seen be successful in college are those who are, are already contributing at the high school level outside of the classroom. Because the reality is, when you think back at college, and I say this to high school students, when I, I say this to college students, and I say this to high school students all the time, you think back of four years of high school or four years of college, what do you remember? And when they tell those stories, it's often things that happen outside the classroom. It wasn't that lesson in history, in American history. It wasn't that, that paper I had to do for whatever or that present. No, it was bonding with my teammates on the field. It was, no, it was that one service project where we raised X amount of dollars, where we danced all night. It was that trip to my study abroad thing that the, very rarely do I hear someone say, oh, yeah, it was something academic. But that's what we pay for. We pay to get an education. And if anything, the pandemic has actually strengthened the need for the on-campus experience. For me, we've heard for years, online is the way the students want to have their education. I'm like, maybe for some, that's the way to get their degree. But if they're paying to go to sit in a residence hall and live that traditional, quote-unquote, college experience, that's what you're paying for. You're paying for the college experience, not necessarily the education, although initially you pay for that. But when you realize it and you think back, that's what you want, a great college experience. And how do you get a great college experience? It's by building those blocks in high school, by getting involved and participating and contributing outside the classroom in ways that allow you to grow and learn with groups and individually. And so those building blocks, when we see that in a college application, we know they're already going to be able to fit in because they'll be the first ones at the activities sphere looking to get involved. They'll be the first ones to sign up for that trip, that service trip or that you know, opportunity with a faculty member to do research in this. We, we just know that. And those who are involved are more likely to persist and succeed than those who aren't. It, that, that literature and that research is, su- is super clear.
0: Right. A lot of good points there. So moving a little bit towards mental health side of things. I'm sure that you can speak to how that's evolved in the last twenty years, and especially within the last year during COVID. What do you see as some of the the There's There's general difficulties or challenges to transition because college is a different lifestyle. There's different expectations. There's being independent. There's taking care of things on your own. There's a different type of uh, class load and academic expectation. All that stuff. Mental health is does not discriminate. And mental health challenge does not discriminate. I don't care who you are. I don't care where you're from, what socioeconomic status, what country, what religion, it does not discriminate. And so I know that it's everywhere. College students in particular, what are some of the themes of what they may struggle with as they're entering these years in college?
1: Yeah, so I think the most pressing things that we've seen over the last, I'd say, five years just use that as a sample number one is that because of the rise of technology and social media it's hard it's harder for students to grind and what i mean by that is they're so used to having everything done quickly and done via quick search that the grind that a higher education puts on you to really write to really critically think to be able to defend your position in class without with not the first answer, but the second answer, the third answer, because you have really thought about these things critically and deeply. That has been really hard for students because they're used to, in some high schools, being able to get away with the quick answer or the easy answer if they weren't pressed in high school. If they were pressed in high school and taught and not just given the easy A, but really had to earn it, we've seen less of the grind in the students, and that has caused additional need for mental health. We've seen a rise in counseling appointments. We've seen a rise in, and not just related to this, it's, it's tot- the totality of transition of being away from home. If you're going away to college and not having someone there all the time, being alone is hard for this generation in a way that they've had their phone. And so they haven't had to be alone. And so when they're physically alone, because they're in a dorm room with a, with a roommate, or if, if they have a single. This whole idea of being alone has been, is hard for students too. And so I think learning how to be alone and thrive alone is something that we should be trying to help students experience earlier on. This idea of failure, they don't get a good grade, like that is hard on students when they think they've done what they should do and then they get a C and a paper. Like that first C or that first, even a B for some students. What do you mean I got a B? And then the faculty member points out all the things that they could have done better and says you can earn a higher grade if you do this, that that reaction of my whole world is shattered. I thought it was so great. I thought it was special. <laughs> you know what I mean? So again, when you're, when you look at this generation, particularly the Xennials, if you will, it, it, it's hard to, trans- to transition to go to school. It is, it's not easy. And we do our best to not handhold, but say, look, you're, this is not this is real life. This college is real life. People's like when I get into the real world. And I, you're in the real world now, and we'll help you. But we're not gonna make, we're not gonna make it super easy so you just coast. And we...
0: I'm so glad you said that because one of the things that I had jotted down, and there is no exact answer to this, is how do you strike the balance? This is for everybody. This is for parents. Sure. This is for other institutions. But we're talking about college. How do you strike the balance between respecting and understanding and validating mental health struggles but also not just okay here's a free pass like now they're starting to face adversity and okay free pass go pass go collect two hundred dollars i don't know if people play monopoly anymore but (laughs) just like here just move on by because that's not really helpful either because it's just perpetuating you want them to get stronger how do you strike the balance between the two?
1: Yeah, so those who work in student affairs specifically will understand what I'm about to say, and it's, it's a theory around challenge and support. The idea is that you ask good questions when people are starting to feel stressed or people are starting to have anxiety. You say, okay, are you okay? What's causing you to feel this way? What, what happened? And to really talk, have those deeper conversations and let them talk about what's going on and then say, all right, how about we try this? Or how about we do it this way? Or how about we try it in a different format? You're used to doing it this way. How about I teach you a new way? And then you try it. I think it isn't giving them the pass. It's acknowledging what they're feeling. Great. But then saying, now that we've acknowledged it, we can't dwell. We got to move on because you can't sit in. I mean, you can, but we want them to move off that space in order to grow because If you just keep going in that circle, there's not growth. And college is about growth. College is a high growth time if done. If you get that education, you have the experiences you need to grow and mature, then you will be more likely a contributor to society. And I I think now more than ever, we need to be able to have challenging and difficult conversations, not to agree or get someone to believe my point, but to say, this is my side. This is what I think. And we can agree to disagree, but I think listen to each other and not get defensive and take that other position and say, oh, if you're not with me or against me, the thing. And so with students particularly, they, I've seen it, they've shut down. They're like, I don't want to talk. I, I can't do this. I, I'm going to go. And they leave. And it's like, okay, let them go. And then you follow up later and you challenge them and you say, I, I know you're upset. How are you doing? Are you okay? And what do we, what do you need? And, and some students can't, and won't, and they leave. And okay, when we're, we can't save everybody. We can't change everybody. We can certainly challenge them, but also support them in a way that hopefully gets them to grow and actualize who they are already. They just don't know it yet. That's what a college education should do. And if you're paying the kind of money that some people pay, you better believe we're going to make sure we give you that, that sort of attention and, and support because students today need it.
0: And as much as students may not want to accept it, for someone else to do it for them and give them the easy path is not helpful to them. It's they're not going to grow. The way to grow is through adversity.
1: And that's unfortunately what's happened. They People have done it for them. And so if they go to college, they have to understand we're not going to do it for them. It's funny because some students, when bills come out, parents call the office and say, can you tell me more about this bill and when it's due? And we have to say no, because they have the student has to sign a FERPA release because it's part of the student record parents go crazy i'm like i'm sorry that you're not happy about it but if your student didn't sign up for a FERPA release we can't discuss anything regarding the record including the bill your student has it it's in their email certainly reach out to your student and talk to them and they can talk to us if they need any help some parents are like ah, this is it's like new math like the way they're teaching math in high school or in middle school now it's wait you can't and we're clear at orientation we say if you want to have access your student's going to have to sign a release. A lot of parents go, okay, whatever, sure. And then when we do it, they're like, oh, you all are serious. Like, yep, we're very serious. This is a federal law. Like we can't just go into federal, state, local. We can't discuss anything related in the student record unless we have permission.
0: Generation certainly has changed. And I like what you said about that approach, supporting, but also challenging. I remember I went to the Yale uh, Child Center for a training and Dr. Eli Liebowitz. He, his definition of support for parent was really two ingredients, which really resonated with me. It was, I hear you. I understand that this is challenging for you, and this is hard. At the same time, I believe you can do it. That's right. Those two components. I can understand and appreciate that it's hard. I can also believe that you can do it. You can speak to this more than me. It, it's such an interesting dynamic of we're connected but disconnected at the same time. And now you're saying they're physically alone. There was a book I read a long time ago that I thought was really great. I think it's called uh, Alone Together. It's either Alone Together Alone, but basically speaking to how technology and social media has impacted our relationships and how we relate to others.
1: Yeah, the author was, I think the for- she, she was a former, she was connected with MIT, I think. I, I yes. know what the book you're talking about. But yeah, Alone, alone Together, that's, that was a great book.
0: So that's some of the struggles. Now, throw in COVID where you're, for all intensive purposes, eliminating a lot of the out-of-classroom stuff like you're talking about and the social mm-hmm. aspect, which is so important, and it's very isolating. What are some of the struggles you're seeing now because mm-hmm. of COVID?
1: Yeah, so on campus, we were able to open and be have a full semester with residents on campus, so we were lucky in that way. Initially, it was hard for students, and I think they had a a hard time balancing the expectations of staying apart because each residence hall was its own pod, if you will, and we weren't allowing students to go between residence halls. Even though they were going to class and even though they were seeing each other in class, once they left class, they either had to be outside on the quad or outside in the tent or outside wherever. When they went back to their residence halls, that's where they went. So... I think they did adjust well through the semester. I think they used, obviously, FaceTime and other video chat like most of us were using to stay connected with people. Some, from what I know from the students I've talked with, for first-year students, an interesting phenomenon that's taken place is that they've noted that it's forced them to get out of their shell. So in other words, because they're first-year students, and normally they'd wait for activities to pull together to use that as a spark, this semester, more often than not, Walk down the hall, introduce themselves, and got to know people without the need, without the guide of an event or some organized activity or club. And so interestingly, the first year students have adjusted better than I thought they would in that respect, that they didn't need what normally we would do in that respect for student engagement. The other side of that coin is that, because if you're a junior or senior, you had friends already and you were living with your friends. So it wasn't as hard for them to adjust because they were already in their circle of, of folks. It was the first and second year students that had a harder time, who I also suspect may or may not return in the spring because of their experiences this, the, and might defer to the fall to start again. But I, but I think in terms of the, what our students, at, at least at Curry, They've been resilient, they really have. It's a hard semester. When you think about, particularly for the students that were here in the spring and had to pivot when COVID first started and go home because of the shutdown, they've been learning online since March. And credit to the faculty who figured it out and adjusted and evolved and got better and anything else. Once you get going, you figure it out. Everyone's been flexible. I think there's been a level of flexibility, there's been level of understanding that's been there. And I think there's been opportunities for future once we get past the pandemic, to really rethink how we support students, how we support each other, and how we structure the education in a way that takes the best of everything that we learned, whether it's in the online environment, in a hybrid environment, face to face. It might provide pathways for us to create new and exciting things for students that again, may not have been there unless of the pandemic forcing. The pandemic has accelerated what was going to happen in higher ed four or five years from now. 2024, 2025 was the year of the enrollment cliff. It it is still the enrollment cliff due to the nature of birthing rates. We know that's the year that we'll have a 20 to 25% drop in high school graduates because of that year, 2018 years ago, I think it was 06, 05, 06, 07. So, and my daughter is going to be benefiting from that because she'll be graduating from college, and I'm graduating from high school and getting ready to go to college. So she'll have her pick. <laughs> so if you're if you have a graduating senior in the class of 24, you're going to have your pick of college, especially in the Northeast. I can't speak for the rest of the country, but if you're looking in the Northeast, woof, you're going to have your choice because people are going to be paying out the nose to get you to come to their college <laughs> at that wow.
0: point. So yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, so just, we have a couple more minutes here and. You speak to how, in some ways, it was a blessing in in some of what COVID has forced everyone to pivot and to be flexible, and and we're way more resilient than we tend to think we are. So, maybe I don't know if you could speak to this, but maybe some schools who were stuck longer with online learning, and I've seen this some with high school students, college students also, it was very difficult. I should give a caveat to this because when I'm seeing people, I'm seeing in a psychotherapy practice so it's not necessarily indicative of the entire population. Very difficult to maintain motivation and to maintain engagement. And some schools have been more understanding than others as far as the expectations of being able to sit in front of a screen and to be engaged and to be motivated to continuously do work same level. And I don't have all these other components and yet I'm supposed to be sitting in front of a screen and, and be engaged all day, every day. So I've seen a dip in that. You've been fortunate that you've been able to be in person and be on campus. I don't know if you have colleagues who have been strictly online. If they Purely seen-
1: online, yep. Yeah, they've seen more of, I think, this the, a higher level of disconnection because of being apart and not in person for anything or any of it. And so... I would say at the community college level, we've seen that in Massachusetts specifically, that their enrollment is down and their retention is down because just people aren't willing to do that much or all of it online. I think they're willing to do it for a semester, maybe even the summer, but in many ways, I think for, this, for the staff and faculty I know at other institutions who've all gone re- remote specifically, some of things are very easy because they don't have to go anywhere, they just are home. So, like, the work. The ability to, to work from home has been, for some, a blessing. But also, it causes this work all the time. The balancing of having separation between work and home is, I've, seen, I've heard that from my colleagues, too. It's more challenging for them. But I have to go back to the resiliency thing, because I think no matter who you talk to in education specifically, it, it is a testament to the human condition and spirit in order to get through this. No one could see, maybe not no one, we could not have seen this coming when we when we celebrated 2020 Happy New Year last year. And yet, when you look back on this year, all of us who have been able to keep going and thrive and, and still maintain some sense of a routine, of some normalcy, it is a testament to people. For as much as it's hard to be on Zoom all day and then it's exhausting, and then you have to get on Zoom to talk to your family and then get on Zoom to talk to your friends or whatever. I've just seen a spirit that is hope that makes me hopeful and makes, I think... It should make others hopeful for the future and what's ahead. And I I can't speak for my other colleagues across higher education because again, I think we're all a little bit disconnected too. We haven't gone to conferences, we haven't been able to present together, we haven't been like doing any really real research, unless you're at one of those big time schools with lots of money. So we have not really stayed as connected either because we're all struggling to just do the job, keep our students engaged and keep our family engaged too. Certainly there's many others out there listening that can tell you about that. But from my perspective, I, am, I admire the human condition for being able to get through and continue to get through what we're dealing with.
0: That's a beautiful thought to really close out about. It's inspiring and sometimes, even more than sometimes, it's the challenges how we respond to challenges that we learn more about ourselves and we learn how strong we are and what we can handle. And 10 out of 10 times, the predictions we have for something of how hard it's going to be or how I'm going to manage is not accurate and we can do better and we can handle more than we ever could imagine. So that's a great thought to take away. And, And one thing that's been unique with COVID is that it's almost been like the great equalizer. The administration Mm -hmm. and staff has been disconnected. We've been disconnected. Students have been disconnected. Parents, it's like everyone. So I'm in the mental health field and this and all my colleagues also, it's almost connected us more because we're all in a similar boat of having to ride the waves of this thing and unpredictability and uncertainty and all the challenges that come along with it. And I couldn't agree with you more that it's a real testament to to the human spirit and, and resilience. I really enjoyed this, and I'm sure people listening enjoyed it. I appreciate your time. If somebody wants to learn more about Curry, or wants to learn more about you, where could they go?
1: Sure, yeah. No, if folks want to connect, I'm on social media. You can find me on LinkedIn. If you search Ed Cabellon, you'll find me right away. I'm on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and all of it. So certainly folks want to reach out professionally and continue the conversation around higher education, happy to do it all the time. And if folks are interested in in Curry College and applying to Curry College for programs, certainly curry.edu is the place to go. And proud of our institution and proud of the work that my colleagues and I are doing there and really appreciate the opportunity to be with you today.
0: Thank you so much. And for those listening who appreciate this and got something out of it, everyone who comes on, Ed included, myself included, We're just taking our time trying to share a little bit and hopefully it's meaningful to someone. If someone wants to be supportive, it's really just simple as rating the podcast, sharing it, reviewing it, all that stuff just helps with a little bit of an exposure to hopefully reach more ears.